0: Well, good morning, church. We're so glad you joined us this morning. Today we're going to continue in our series, Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo. Now, as we began this series, we defined spiritual vertigo as those things that we allow into our lives or even those things that just happen to us or things that we bring into our lives that cause us to emotionally and spiritually kind of get knocked off balance or make us feel like spiritually... We're spinning out of control. And we said, according to the writers of Hebrews, that the the, the writer of Hebrews, the way that we overcome spiritual vertigo is by laying some things aside, laying aside the weighty things in our life, like divorce, like uh, the deaths that we've experienced, like the hardships, like the broken relationships, all those things that spiritually weigh us down. Be willing to lay those aside, as well as lay aside the sin that's in our life, and ultimately, not only lay those things aside, but fix our eyes on Jesus. That's how we overcome spiritual vertigo in our lives. Now, the question we asked last week may be the most important question we're going to ask the entire series, and it's this question, is what's at stake if I do nothing? Now that I know how to overcome spiritual vertigo, I know I need to lay some things aside and fix my eyes on the Lord. What's at stake if I do nothing? What is the potential impact on my life if I do absolutely nothing? And last week we said that one of the impacts that we face if we let spiritual vertigo continue to linger in our life is that it can lead us down a path where it will shatter our faith. Not just rock it, not rattle it, but ultimately can shatter it. And we looked at a guy that if any, if God had been through anything, this guy had been through it. And it should, in, in all human expectations and in terms of all humanity, I mean, you look at what he went through, ultimately, you would look at that and go, that should have shattered his faith. But in Job, we didn't see a faith that was shattered. We saw a faith that was unshakable. And the reason it was unshakable is because he was allowed, he was, a, he was willing to lay down those weighty things. And he put his eyes on the Lord. And the Bible says, and he worship the lord so if we're not careful and we let spiritual vertigo continue in our life it will lead us down a path that could potentially shatter our faith but i think there's another path that can take us down and it's also a path that if we let spiritual vertigo continue in life it can take us down a path of idolatry now we all know what idolatry is idolatry is when we place someone or something above the Lord, when they become the priority of our life, when they become the most important thing in our life. And you think about it, when we let things that come into our life, the weighty things and the sins in our life, and we allow those things to linger and to set there and we don't deal with those things, those things become the priorities of our life. Those things become the things we cling to the most. Those things become the ultimate focus of our lives. And in that moment, when they are the most important thing in our lives, they become idols when they take the place of the Lord, when they are the most important and on the throne of our lives, they're the things we're most focused on in that moment. All those things become idols. So yes, your grief can become your idol. Yes, a person can become your idol. Yes, the sin that you're not dealing with can become your idol. So today I want us to look at the story of the Israelites. A story where we see their struggle with idolatry, we see the consequence of idolatry, but ultimately we will see the path to overcoming idolatry. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, and the first thing I want us to notice in the passage is the struggle with idolatry. Look with me in the first nine verses. It says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up. Make us some gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all of them took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it in graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow we shall feast before this Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people, who you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now let me give you kind of context what's going on. These people, these Israelites, Moses led them out of captivity. He's led them into the wilderness. And now he's gone up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. And we know from this encounter that this is going to be the moment that God gives him the Ten Commandments, that God establishes the law, that God says, listen, as my people, here's how I want you to live a life of holiness. This is what it's going to look like for you to be separate from the rest of the world. And why Moses is on the mountaintop, And while he's up there with God, meeting with the holy God, the people, the Israelites who are at the bottom of the mountain, have committed the heinous act of idolatry. The heinous act of idolatry. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, here's what you know. They wrestled with idolatry over and over and over again. They always wrestled with prioritizing, clinging to, and focusing on other things other than their God, Yahweh, Jehovah. They put everything before him, and that was something they wrestled with. And I guess what really blows me away with what Israel did in this moment was, think about all the things God had just done for them. Now I'm talking about things that God had done for them over the course of life. I'm talking, think about the things that God had done for them over the last few months. I mean, they had, their ancestors had been in slavery for 400 years. And God goes and calls Moses and delivers them out of the hands of slavery. He brought 10 plagues. I mean, each plague in their own right was a miracle. And God brings them out of slavery. And then they get to the Red Sea, right? And there's a mountain on one side, a mountain on the other, Uh, Pharaoh's armies behind them, and the sea in front of them. And they begin to complain, like, you know, what are we going to do? And what does God do? God uses Moses to raise the staff, and he parts the waters. And they cross the Red Sea, and as they cross it, and Pharaoh's army pursues them, he even destroys Israel's enemy. And then once they get to the wilderness, and they get to the desert, you know, what does God do for them? Because now there's no crops to be harvested, there's no food for them. So what does God do? He provides manna from heaven. He provides them food. He provides them water. He takes care of them. So as you look at the the immediate history of Israel, they've only seen the provision, the protection, and the blessing of God in their life. And probably the thing that's most important over all of that is way back in Exodus 6, God establishes a covenant relationship with them. Listen to what it says in Exodus 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the under the burdens of the Egyptians. He says, "Listen, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Me, who is the sovereign of the universe, me, who is Lord of everything, me, who is the creator of the world. I'm choosing you, Israel. I didn't choose Egypt. I didn't choose Assyria. I didn't choose Babylon. I'm choosing you." So out of all the amazing miracles that God did, maybe the most amazing miracle is that God chose to enter a covenant relationship with Israel themselves. See, that's why it blows me away. In light of the immediate past of all that God had done for them, and the moment that it feels like God's not with them, they jump ship and they commit idolatry. Now, I don't know about you, but when you think about that, and you think what they've done, they've built this golden calf, and you think about how God has delivered them, protected them, provided for them, and entered a covenant with them, doesn't that blow you away a little bit too? But before we're too hard on them, let's be real honest. Don't many of us have some golden calves in our lives too? See, I think the same thing could be said about us. If we were to look how God has provided for us, protected us, delivered us, entered into a relationship with us, but yet so many times we are quick to put other things before him, we are quick to put other things on the throne of our life, is it possible that we too, just like Israel, have some golden calves in our lives? You know, for some of you, maybe that golden calf is your career. It has become the priority of your life. You want to climb the corporate ladder. You want to make more money. And part of your motivation may be a good motivation. You want to provide more for your family. But ultimately, it has become the most important pursuit in your life rather than the Lord. And when that happens, at the moment, your career becomes more important than the Lord. That's an idol. And maybe for some of you, it's your family your spouse, your kids, or maybe even your kids' interest. I remember when my oldest son, James, who's 21 now, when he was like 11 and 12, he got invited to go do travel baseball. Many of you have kids that travel, whether it's 4-H or baseball or basketball or whatever it is, or rodeo. I mean, you've got kids that travel to a lot of stuff. But I remember that conversation with James because as a dad, you're like, I don't want my kid missing Sunday church because you know travel sports and all those activities happen on Saturdays and what? Sundays, we know that. And that was a real battle. Now, did James play travel baseball? I absolutely let him. But what we did commit to was he wasn't going to miss church on Sunday morning, frankly. He might have missed it once or twice in an entire season because being at church, hearing the word of God, and worshiping our Savior was the most important thing in his life. Now, why did I do that? I did that because I want to teach my son that if he's not careful, that baseball could become an idol in his life. And why he can enjoy baseball and God can use it as a platform in his life to make a difference in the lives of others, ultimately, God must be first. And if you're a parent who's got kids that travel, you know exactly the challenge I'm talking about. And if we're not careful, we can let the interests and the desires of even our family become the priority over helping them pursue a relationship with the Lord. And in that moment when it happens, it's an idol. For some of us, it's our finances. We look at the almighty dollar and we want more of it, more of it, more of it. Well, if you read the New Testament at all, you see Jesus over and over and over again talk about you can't serve two masters. You can't love God and love money. You're going to learn to love one and hate the other. That's just the way it is. And for some of us, money has become our idol. So before we're so quick to stone Israel for their decision, just remember this. Many of us have golden calves in our lives. So as I look at Israel's struggle with idolatry, the question that comes to my mind is, what led them to struggle with idolatry? And I think in the passage, there's really a few things that we see. First of all, I think it's their lack of commitment to the Lord. I think one thing we see in this passage that led them to idolatry is their lack of commitment to the Lord. Look what it says here. Just listen to this. It says this. It says at the very beginning of verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. See, this is a people that God called out, God had delivered, and God had provided for. They had declared their allegiance and their loyalty to the Lord. But Moses is gone. And he's not been gone a weekend. He wasn't gone a week. He was gone a long time. And the people of God, the Israelites, become impatient with the Lord. They become impatient, and ultimately they begin to say, okay, God, I need you to operate on our timetable. Moses is not back. We're not sure what you have for us, so we're just going to take matters into our own hands. See, this is a group of people that declared their commitment. But what we see in this passage, because God delayed in their life, their commitment was fragile. Their commitment was fickle. Now, I want you to hear me say something. Here it is. True commitment is patient and true commitment endures. Probably the best example of that is marriage. If you've been married for any season of time, you know, five years, 10 years, Sonia, I've been married 26 years. If you've been married for any season of time, here's what you know. Your spouse has learned to be patient with you, right? You've got some issues and they've been patient with you. But even more than that, you've endured some things in a marriage. You've gone through some hard times. You've gone through some big decisions. And what you found out about your marriage is that there was real commitment there. It wasn't that you were committed to the institution of marriage. You were committed. You were in a covenant relationship with your spouse. And because of that, you learned to be patient. Because of that, you learned to endure. Well, that is not the heartbeat of Israel. They had entered in a covenant relationship with the Lord, but because of their impatience, they took matters into their own hands. It was their lack of commitment that led them down a path of idolatry. I think another reason that they struggled with idolatry is because they had a small view of God. Look what it says here in like verse the end of verse one. He says that the people come together and they come to Aaron. And they said to him, "Make us gods who shall go before us." So think about what they said. They come to Aaron. They're impatient. They're taking matters in their hands. Their commitment that they declared is fragile. It's fickle. And so now they come to Aaron because they have such a small view of God. Here's what they say to Aaron Aaron, make gods for us as if God could be created, right? And make gods for us that can go before us as if God could be controlled. So what Israel wanted was they wanted a God to show all the other nations that they had a God because if you were a nation, two things you had to have was a God you worship and land you occupied. And so they wanted a God they could worship, but they also wanted a God that could be created, and they wanted a God that they could control nowhere in the response to Aaron do we see Israel coming to him and declaring that we know that the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that brought us out, the God that delivered us, that he's sovereign, he's in control, he's on his throne, he's all powerful, all knowing, all present. Nowhere do they come to him and go, we acknowledge that the God of all eternity is for us. What do we do? No, that's not what they do at all. In fact, they come to Aaron and say, hey, by the way, this God of Moses seems to abandon us, so will you make us some other gods? The ultimately, what are they saying? You ready? They're saying that the creator God is replaceable. That they live their life in such a way that they ignored the blessings, they ignored the provision, they ignored the prote- protection, they ignored the deliverance that God gave them, and ultimately what they're saying to Aaron is that our God is replaceable. He's replaceable. That's what they thought. They had such a small view of God that instead of him being this all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient creator who was fighting for them, they reduced God to someone who could be replaced. So I think one reason they struggled and they led to idolatry is their small view of God. And I think another thing we see in the passage that led them down the path of idolatry is they had a willingness to commit spiritual adultery. Now, we all know what adultery is, right? Adultery is when a married person who's in a covenant relationship with their spouse chooses to break that covenant and go have an intimate relationship with someone else. In other words, they get out of the bed of their spouse and they jump in the bed of someone else. That's exactly what Israel did. Look what it says here in this passage here. It says this, then, and Moses said that, or, or they said this and in verse four, and, and he received the golden from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And then he said this, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are your gods. In other words, he made this golden calf and immediately Aaron declares, this is our God now. He was, they were willing to forsake the covenant they had made with the Lord. They were willing to commit spiritual adultery. They forsook all, the, all the, the, the affection, all the attention, all their loyalty, and all their allegiance to the Lord. And they took all of that allegiance, all that loyalty, and they gave it to a graven image, the golden calf. Now, I want you to hear me say this. There's one thing that Israel did not understand that we have to understand is this. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. I'm gonna tell you, I've been a pastor in the ministry almost 30 years now. And I'm just gonna tell you, all the times I've counseled couples, here's what I would say to be true, and it's this. It's that in a relationship, in a marriage relationship, the ultimate act of betrayal is that of adultery. And when we put idols and something before the Lord, we are committing spiritual adultery. We are saying, God, I'm going to break my covenant with you, and I'm going to go join myself with something else. Whether that's my grief, or that's sports, whether that's my career, whether that's my money, whatever it is, when we commit idolatry, that is spiritual adultery. It's one of the greatest ways we can betray our Lord. Now, Doug, why are you saying that? I'm saying it because I think too many times we treat idolatry like it's not that big of a deal. It's just not that big of a deal. And I'm telling you it is because it is spiritual adultery to the Lord. So when we look at Israel, we see this struggle and they struggled because of lack of commitment. They struggled because of their small view of God and they struggled with idolatry because they were willing to commit spiritual adultery. And if we struggle with idolatry, Maybe we struggle for the same reasons Israel struggled. Which leads me to the second thing I want you to notice, and that's the consequence of idolatry. The consequence of idolatry. Look with me in verse 10. It says this, Now therefore let let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. In other words, God is so angry with Israel that he is ready to destroy them. He is so angry with them that he is ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. God's anger was burning against Israel because of their idolatry. Now, why would his anger burn against them? Because when they choose to commit spiritual adultery, when they choose to leave their affection and their allegiance to the Lord and place it somewhere else, now they are working in direct opposition and direct conflict with the Lord. Now they have put themselves across the isle of the Lord, and now they're an enemy toward him. Now they've replaced him in their conflict. And you know, the scripture says in Exodus 20, not to bow before any other images, and God says that I am a jealous God. Now what that means is God says, listen, I'm going to be number one in your life. And if you put someone else there, I'm going to let you know it. You're going to feel that because I refuse to be number two in your life. I refuse not to be the one on the throne of your life. And God is so upset with Israel that they're about to find out that he really is a jealous God. He was angry with them, but not always God angry with them, so was Moses. Look at me in verse 15 through 20. It says this. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, one on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, "There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not a sound of shouting of victory or a sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as they came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain and he took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it among the water and made the people drink it. I mean, Moses was hot. And he had every right to be, didn't he? Think about this. Moses was completely content being a shepherd. He was 40 years in the wilderness just tending sheep. And yet God heard the cries of his people, Exodus 3, and he goes and he calls Moses out and said, Moses, I want you to go deliver my people. And Moses risked his life because he was a wanted man. He had killed an Egyptian many, many years ago. And he goes back to Egypt and he delivers God's people only to bring them out to the Red Sea where they would complain and complain and complain. But yet God gets them through the Red Sea and now they're at a place where Moses is like, listen, I gave up everything for you. And I'm so angry with what you've done, not just because of what you've done to me, but you defiled the Lord. And what does he do to the Ten Commandments? He throws them on the ground and he breaks them, which is a beautiful picture of how they had broken the covenant they made with the Lord. And then what does he do? I find this fascinating. You know what he does? He destroys the golden image. He destroys it. He turns the gold into powder. And he makes all of Israel drink it. Now, why would he destroy it? Because he wanted them to know that a true God is indestructible. But this God was easily destructible. And the reason he made them drink it because he wanted to know the gold that you're drinking is now, is now impure. So you can't use that gold anymore. I mean, just think about it for a moment. This golden image that they have their allegiance to, Moses destroys it, turns it into powder, and says, oh, by the way, you're going to drink this. Moses was angry with them. But here's the worst part of it. Look in verse 35, what it says. Then the Lord sent a plague on all the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made ultimately, in the face of God's anger, the anger of Moses, here's what we see happen. God sends a plague to discipline his people. So when we say, what is the consequence of idolatry? Here it is, you ready? Here's the consequence of idolatry. It's spiritual devastation. See, when we let idolatry reign and rule in our life, when we let something take the place of the Lord, we are working in direct opposition and are in conflict with the Lord. We will have abandoned our covenant relationship when we do that. And ultimately, like Israel, we are in the crosshairs of God's discipline in our lives. So the consequence for idolatry is spiritual devastation, just like Israel experienced. Which leads me to the last thing I want you to notice, and that's ultimately the path to overcome idolatry. And I really feel like, as I was preparing this message and looking at this, I thought, you know, okay, when we see the struggle of Israel and now we see the consequence, ultimately, what is the path out of this? What is the path that we see in this passage of, out of getting out of adultery and overcoming idolatry? What is that path? And I think the path is us remembering three things. The first one is found in verse 11 through 14. And it says this, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, "O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians, with the evil intent, did he bring them out just to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent for this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore to your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as stars of the heaven, and I will give you a land that I promised you, and I will give you uh, offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he'd spoken of bringing on his people. Now, when you look at this, I think one thing we have to remember if we're going to overcome idolatry is we have to remember who God is. Remember who he is. See, as we look at this dialogue between God and Moses, Moses is talking to God like, God, you know, I know you're angry, I'm angry, we're upset, but just remember the promises you made. And it's just a beautiful reminder to us who God is. God is faithful. Faithful. And in this, Moses reminds us and reminds God of the promise he made Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob. I promised to make them a nation that would be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, a nation that would have a land that flowed with milk and honey. God made that promise. And the reminder is this, who is God? God is faithful. God is a God who always keeps his promises. So, if you feel like you're alone and that you've been left out in the dark and you can't feel God and you can't sense God, the promise that He will never leave you nor forsake you is real. And it's a promise you need to claim because He's not abandoned you, He's not walked away from you, He's with you. Maybe you feel like, God, Doug, I've, I've lost my way, I don't know where I'm going. I'm struggling. I need wisdom from the Lord. Listen, the promise that if you lean not on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, that he will make your path straight that's a promise you can bank on. Listen, there are over 7,000 promises in God's word, and each one he's faithful to keep. But then it says here at the end of that that God relented from consuming them. You know what that means? Is that God is a God who is merciful, Ron Ritchie and I were having a conversation the other day how God is always quick to show mercy and slow to show wrath. But when we read the Old Testament, we tend to think the opposite. We tend to think that God is wrathful and he's not very merciful. But this passage is a reminder that what God is anger, that rather than destroying Israel, what did he do? He showed them mercy. And if we're going to overcome the idolatry, if we're going to overcome putting things before the Lord, we have to remember who God is. Who he is is faithful. God is faithful. God always keeps his promises. And God is willing to show us mercy. Now listen to me. For me, when I think about who God is, and I think about the mercy that he's shown me, and thinking about how he's kept his promises in my life, it motivates me to want him and him only to be on the throne of my life. But there's a second thing I think we need to remember. It's found in verse 21 through 24. It says this, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, listen to this, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil, for they... Said to me, Make us gods and we shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came a calf. That's what Aaron says. See, I think if we're going to overcome idolatry and putting things first, yes, we need to remember who God is, but we need to remember who we are. We are sinners, we are wretched left to our own rationale, we will always default to everybody else. We will always play the blame game. Did Aaron take any responsibility for what he had done? No. He minimalized it. He said, they gave me their goat, I threw it in. A calf came out. Is that really possible? No. Aaron took no responsibility for life. And listen, when we recognize who we are, that we are broken and that we're in need of a savior, then we need to realize that we do have idols in our life and we need to be willing to call those idols out. Not ignore them, but to call them out. We need to remember who God is. He's faithful. But we need to remember who we are. We're sinners and we need a holy God on the throne of our life to guide us and to direct us. There's one more thing I think we need to remember. It's fine find verse 30 through 34 as we close this out. It says this. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please, listen, blot me out of your book, That you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Listen, here's the last thing that we need to remember. We need to remember knowing who God is, who's faithful, knowing who we are as sinners. But we need to remember, we need to remember the price that's been paid for us. See, there's something in this passage that I have never seen before. Moses comes out and acknowledges the sinfulness of what was going on, and acknowledges that there had to be atonement, that there had to be sacrifice for their sin. But when Moses meets with God, something I had never noticed before is Moses offers himself. He said, if you're not gonna forgive these people, Lord, take me, let me be the sacrifice. Let me take their place. I don't want them to suffer. Lord, take me, let me be that sacrifice. Man, what a beautiful picture of Jesus, the price that he paid for us, that he took on the wrath of God and died so that we can live. And because of the price he paid, because of the price he paid, he alone deserves to be on the throne of our life. And if we are going to acknowledge that dollar in our life and we're going to overcome it, we need to remember who God is and is faithful. We need to remember who we are sinners that needs a holy God, but we need to remember the price that Jesus paid for us on the cross when he died so that we can live. So I want to ask you this morning, what are some of the idols that's in your lives? What are some of the things that you need to, to let go of this morning? What are those idols? And do you understand the gravity of the idolatry that's in your life? Do you understand that it is spiritual adultery that you're committing? It is the greatest form of betrayal against the Lord you can commit. Do we understand that? And ultimately, do we want to overcome that idolatry that's in our lives? Do we want to do the things we just talked about? And if you're a follower of Jesus and you say, yes, Doug, I've got idols in my life, some things I need to lay down, but I want to overcome that idolatry, here's what I'm going to ask you to do with me this morning. First of all, I'm going to ask you to lay those idols down. Call them out and lay them down before the Lord. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to remember who God is, who you are, and remember the price that He's paid for you. And last of all, I want you to turn, after you've laid this down, and if you remember, I want you to turn your eyes and fix them back on the Lord. That's the only way we're going to get through this. And if you're watching this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I want to say this to you. This story is one of the most beautiful stories that paint a picture and a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do for us. Because of our sin, we deserve eternal separation from a holy God. But Jesus took our place. He bore our sins He took on the full punishment of God because he loves us. And all we have to do is receive it. Acknowledge we're sinners. Say that we believe that Jesus is the son of God who died for our sins and confess him as Lord, boss, and master of our lives. And will you make that decision this morning? I'm gonna ask you no matter where you find yourself, believer or not, Would you be faithful to respond as the Lord leads you? Let's pray together. God, I love you. I thank you for this passage but I gotta guess what is birthing in my soul this morning is the sense that for believers that are watching, that we would understand if we let spiritual vertigo continue in our lives, yes, it could shatter our faith, but ultimately, it can lead us to idolatry. It can lead us to a place where we put other things before you, Lord. We lift up other things and worship them, adore them, focus on them, cling to them over you. And when we do that, Lord, it is idolatry. And I pray, Lord, you would help us understand why we struggle with idolatry. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us understand the grave consequence of that. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would motivate us to overcome it by remembering who you are, by remembering who we are, but by remembering, celebrating, and worshiping you because the price you paid for us with your son. God, for believers, May that force us to lay down our idols and put our eyes on you. And for those who've never trusted you, may it motivate us to surrender to you as our Lord and Savior. God, would you be with us in this moment? May we find ourselves pursuing desperately after you. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name I pray. Amen.